All righty. Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn to, we're moving on to Mark chapter 11 tonight. Mark chapter 11. The title of the message is The Authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 11, and we'll begin reading in verse 1, and it says, And when they came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied, whereon never a man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord has need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What are you doing, loosing the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon them. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And would not allow that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught them, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. And was even was come, he went out of the city. And we'll stop reading there. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord. And Father, we just ask that once again, you'll speak your word to our hearts, open your word up to us, Lord, our minds, our understanding that we can see you, the King, in your glory and in your authority. And I just ask you'll do that for us tonight in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. So this, you know, you may even have it marked in your Bible. This chapter is traditionally given the title, The Triumphal Entry. So it's when our Lord makes his final journey to Jerusalem. He probably made several journeys there being a pious Jew for the different festivals. But it's a week before Passover, and he's headed there now. He's going to meet his certain death on the cross. That's what's coming his way. So he's heralded by the people as the coming king. And the people, they're spreading out their garments before him with palm branches they'd cut from trees, exclaiming, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And he approaches Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Now, when I was a Catholic, the way they would commemorate that event on Palm, they called it Palm Sunday. They'd give us, I remember as a kid, I'd walk home, they'd give me a palm branch to take home. And I'm surprised they weren't giving, you know, donkey rides out in the parking lot to commemorate things. But that's one thing they did. 
But you can just picture, here's the Lord Jesus Christ coming down the Mount of Olives. It's, it was higher in elevation than the city of Jerusalem. And here's all these people surrounding him shouting. And he's just got, I just picture him with this grace and majesty riding humbly on that little donkey. And I had a friend growing up, <laughs> we lived in the city, he lived next door to me, and so he goes and moves out into the country when I was about 15 or so. So he asked me one time to come out and visit him, and I get over there, and they take me out to the barn. Well, they got a donkey and some horses, but he's like, yeah, well, we can ride this donkey if you want to. And so they're telling me, I, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, and this may even be wrong, but the way I remember it was they're like, well, donkeys are smart. At least they're smarter than horses because a donkey knows when to quit eating where a horse will just eat and eventually founder, you know, just overeat itself. But no, donkeys are smart. And they said, well, this donkey's so smart, we'll let you ride it. But he likes to snag you on the barbed wire fence. He'll get you up against there and try to get you off that way. And then they said, and if that doesn't work, then he'll head off. They had a pond that wasn't too far from the barn. They said, he'll head off as fast as that little donkey legs can go, and he'll run right to the pond when he gets right to the edge. He puts on the brakes all of a sudden, lowers his head, and he'll send you flying into the pond. Okay, so I thought, well, all right, well, anyways, so I was warned, anyways, but the problem was the experienced rider that I was, he was successful with both, and he snagged my jeans on the barbed wire fence and get down to the pond, and there I go, right in there, right? <laughs> so here's the deal, that, that donkey, they are smarter than horses, that donkey's smarter than me, he knew who was king of the stable, and it wasn't me. Right, So he didn't have any respect for me as a rider, knew I didn't have any authority over him, and that's the way it went. Right? But here's the thing, Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, and here's the difference. That donkey, though, he knew who was king. Right? That's the, that's the best day of that donkey's life. The Lord comes riding in on him, and he knew who had authority over him, the one that had authority over all creation. And the reason I'm saying that is, is because that is the whole point of what's going on here in Mark chapter 11. That's the issue that's at stake, is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who has it, and where does it come from? So I believe a man named Eric Alexander was right when he said that Mark 11, it's got three scenes in it, three scenes. In verses 1 to 11, which we read, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as the king of Israel. Then we have verses 12 to 14, where he approaches the city and curses a fig tree. And verses 15 to 19, Jesus enters the temple and overturns the money changers' tables. And so that's the one thing that all three of those scenes have in common, is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the question that gets raised if we didn't read these verses, but if you would turn towards the end of the chapter in verses 27 to 28, that's the question that's being raised here. Verse 27 of Mark 11, it says, And they come again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, the religious leaders. And they say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? So they want to know, where did you receive this authority that you seem to be exercising with all these things you're doing? And by that they mean, what high priest, what member of the council, or who in a position of power gave you this authority to disrupt what's going on in the temple? Come riding in here like a king and disrupt things in the temple? Who's giving you that authority? And Jesus answers them in this way. Here's how he answers them, by pointing out 
You know, you're limiting spiritual authority to your religious system. And he's saying that's just not the way it is because he's saying all true spiritual authority comes from God. And he answers that by referring them back to John the Baptist. Look in verses 29 and 30. Here was his answer. He answered and said to them, well, I'm going to ask you a question. And you answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And he simply asked them, verse 30, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. He's saying, so was John's ministry from God, or was John's ministry from men? Was it divine or human authority that was exercised in his ministry? You answer me that. And I'll answer your question. And of course, they were afraid to answer it like they really thought because of why. They wanted the praise of the people. And they weren't willing to lose that because they had refused John's prophetic message. Back in Luke, in Luke 7, 29, it says all the people, when they heard Jesus, the publicans and the sinners, they justified God why they were baptized with the baptism of John. Because he said he was the greatest of prophets. And they're like, praise God. We repented when he said to repent. He's the one that baptized us in the Jordan River. And they were justified. It says, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him, meaning John. So they rejected the counsel of God's against them. They rejected God's authority that he had given John. That's what they had done. And he's telling them, look, the issue you had with John is the same issue that you're going to have with me, is what he's saying, because the authority I have didn't come from man, just like John's authority didn't come from a man. It came from God. And he says, you're resisting my authority, is what they've been doing that all along. We've been seeing that in the Gospel of Mark, right? And he said, it came from God. Resisting my authority that came from God, that was their sin. That's what they were doing. Because that is who the person of the Lord Jesus Christ represents. The authority of God in everything he said and did, right? Representation, perfect representation of the Father. So that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Are we submitting to the authority of God's anointed king? That's who Jesus is, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or are you saying, and you, people say it in a nice way a lot of times, they know that Jesus said this on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, we're not to criticize government, but we do it anyways, or whatever, and we're nice about it. We will not have this man to reign over us. That can be done in a very nice way with a smile, and I love Jesus, all in the same breath. can it? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Are we submitting to his authority? So what we want to look at here in this chapter tonight is that Jesus is revealing himself as the ultimate authority in three ways. Number one is king and savior. Number two, he's revealing himself as the ultimate authority as judge. And number three, he's, re he's revealing himself as ultimate authority as the high priest of the temple is what we're going to see. So first of all, Jesus reveals himself as the ultimate authority as king. And we see that right there at the beginning. Look in verses two and three. And he said unto them, he gives his disciples these instructions. Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as you enter into it, you shall find a colt tied, whereon never a man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord has need of him, and straightway he will send him thither. Now, it's funny to me that these modern commentaries, if you read them, they all try to say that Jesus had this all prearranged. 
he had all this prearranged. You know, he'd gone into town one night or whatever ahead of the guys and worked all this out with the donkey's owner. And this was the password. The Lord has need of him. So, you know, here, when you, well, when you hear that, oh, that's okay. Go ahead and take him. And that's what they'll try to say. They have that all worked out. The donkey and his donkey's owner or his workers, they know the password. No, nobody's trying to steal the donkey. That's what they'll say. And I'm saying, I think if all that was prearranged like that, we wouldn't have to have six verses telling us what happened, would we? It could just say Jesus had arranged for his disciples to go in and get this donkey that had never been ridden on. That's the way I would have written it, right? But I believe God gave us six verses to tell us what happened because it was supernatural. I mean, you know, I'm telling you, you, you see somebody in the parking lot in your car, taking your car, and you know, you know what are you doing? You know, well, God told me to give your car, to take your car. Oh, really? We'll see what the Eastwood Police Department thinks about that. You know, that's what I'd say if that happened in my driveway, right? But here, I think what we're seeing here is, this is part of why this is here, is we're seeing the kingly authority that is supernaturally given to Jesus, invested in him. Because we're seeing that he, by the Spirit, is omniscient. He knew exactly where that cult was. I don't think he'd been in town, set this all up, but he told them exactly a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, where that cult was, didn't he? They knew right where to go, and it was exactly like he said it would be. He's sovereign over all events. Everything came to pass. He's the king. What he said is the way it was going to be came to pass exactly like he said. And he has the authority of a king. So kings and queens throughout history, they can requisition which any property that they need to use. And requisition means they can demand the use of it for their kingdom or maybe their personal use. I don't know. So whether it's land, crop, houses, animals, whatever will benefit the kingdom, they can just take it from somebody and use it. I mean, in our country, they do that, I guess, legally and call it eminent domain. So the government wants to come through and you got your nice little house and you're very happy with your land. You don't want to move. Right, Daryl? <laughs> and they tell you, no, you will move because it's for the benefit of the kingdom. And we'll give you a little bit of money or whatever, but that's the way it happens. And they're going to put a public road right through where you lived. But here's the thing. We're saying Jesus is the king. And he needed this donkey, one that had never been ridden on. That's the way it was. A king would ride on a donkey that had never been ridden on. And he needed it to fulfill scripture, didn't he? He's the king of the universe. He's created everything that exists. And as such, he has the sovereign right, the Lord Jesus Christ, to use any of his creation any time or in any way he wants to. Doesn't he? That's the way it is. And that donkey was prophesied about 500 years earlier. There's no accident that donkey was. At 500 years earlier, he had to be where he was. And Jesus had to be able to use it. It couldn't be any other way. So if you would, you want to see that, I'd like you to see it. Uh, turn to Zechariah chapter 9. So you got Malachi and Zechariah. Pretty easy to find. Last book of the Old Testament and go to the next one back. Zechariah 9, 9. And here's what it says. Zechariah 9.9 says this, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, look, 
Thy king, the king, he comes unto thee. Oh, he's just and he's a savior having salvation. And here's how he is. Here's how he is. Lowly, meek, and riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. That was all going to happen exactly like it was said. That donkey was prophesied about 500 years before he ever came into existence. And he said, this king, the king of the universe, the king of Israel, the king of the world is going to come riding not on a white horse. Not at this time, right? He's not going to come like Absalom did. You know how Absalom presented himself when he wanted to take over David? He said he had chariots and horses that would ride, and he had 50 men, I'm sure warriors, that went before him. He's, his pride, he's just primping himself in front of the people, and that's what they love. That's what the people love. But that's not the kind of king Jesus is, is it? The true kingdom king comes how? It says, lowly and riding upon the foal of an ass. And I think it's, it's significant when it says that, that he comes lowly or meekly, because like I said, he is not like the kings of the earth. We just got through here and he says, if you want to be great, you need to be what? Servant of all. And that's the way he comes as a servant of all. So he's not like the kings of the earth. He doesn't just use people for what he can get from them, because when they came with Samuel and they said, we don't want this to go on with these judges. We want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And Samuel says, all right, I'm going to tell you, though, this is the kind of king you're going to get when you want to. Well, the Lord will give you what you want. But he's going to be somebody that just keeps taking, 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 take your sons and daughters, take your lands, take your produce. He's a taker, taker. You won't really like it as much as you think you do. And that's the way Saul was. That's the way the kings of the world are. But when David came, who is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what the first thing he did was? He's a giver. And he gave everybody a piece of bread, a flag on a wine. He says, I want to bless you all. Just the opposite of Saul. And he had a heart for the people. And that's what we see here with the Lord Jesus Christ. But another way we can see that is, back to Mark chapter 11. Look at the end of verse 3. It's not worded great in the King James, but it says, if, he says, if any man say unto you, why do you do this? Say ye that the Lord has need of him. And then at the end of that, he says what? And straightway he will send him hither. What he's saying is when they ask you about that colt and you're taking that colt that is theirs, say the Lord has need of him. And a better way to say it is, and immediately he will send him back. So what he's telling them is, I could. He made that donkey. Right. He can do whatever he wants to. He can just just be off with it. But he says, no, here's the way the Lord is. Just let him know I'm not stealing your donkey. As soon as I'm done with the donkey and riding in, I'll make sure he comes back to you. Well, that says a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? He has concern for people. That is our king. <laughs> I thought that was pretty neat. And so they go on and they make a saddle of swords for Jesus. They throw their cloaks on the back of this donkey this colt that's never been ridden. And here when the people are with Jesus, I believe that God, they're going before him, they're throwing their coats down on the ground, putting these palm branches down. He's getting quite the introduction. Jehu had that happen to him when he rode in when he was anointed king. It kind of points back to that. But I believe God anoints them when they start quoting Psalm 118, which is what they quote. Look in verses 9 and 10. And they went before, and they that followed cried, saying, 
Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I believe God anointed them to say those very words. There again, it's just, they're proclaiming the king. In Luke's account, it says the whole multitude of the disciples. So these aren't the upper crust people. These are just the people that are going, the pilgrims, the common people, his disciples that have been going with him. These aren't the church leaders. These are just the common people going along, praising the king. And here's what it says in Luke. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So it says they were praising God loudly for all the miracles they had seen. His disciples, these people that had been with him. Blind eyes, the lame walking, deaf hearing. And we don't have this in Mark's account, but if you read in John's account, the same account, it says before he came in and made that triumphal entry, what great miracle had happened? Everybody was talking about it. Lazarus was raised from the dead. And people had seen that. They saw what happened. They're talking about it. And they're praising God. Here's the king coming in. Raise the dead. Never before happened like that. Right? Praising the Lord. Praising the King Jesus. And the Pharisees, it says in Luke's account, they heard the people praising him like that. And they tell Jesus, you tell these people, rebuke them. Tell them to stop. I'm saying God's anointed them to do this is what I believe, because here's what Jesus says to him. He says, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. In other words, God is going to anoint someone or something to give his anointed king the praise that he deserves as he's coming in to the heavenly city as a servant. Somebody's going to do it. And I believe he anointed those people. If not people, then it was going to be rocks. Amen? That's the way it is. The amazing thing is, though, that of all of those that God anointed to praise him, they all turned their back on him at his hour of need. Every one of them, right? So their king that they're praising is dying for them. And they're not there. So their praise is anointed, but their vision is nearsighted of the king. They're nearsighted. So they believe the king was coming into Jerusalem was going to fill David's throne. They knew it was empty. They knew the Messiah was going to come and fill it. And they're excited about it. But they're not looking for him just like the disciples we've been hearing about this week after week. They're not looking for the suffering servant, but they're looking for someone that is going to give them prosperity, deliverance from Rome, bring back their prestige as as a nation. That's what they're looking at. And when he's not that, hey, they're not as excited anymore, are they? But God, by his grace, didn't turn everyone in Jerusalem. There were those that had their eyes open to see who he was, and they repented and received him as their Lord and Savior, right? But not all of them. Some of them were going to say he's not what we expected. And that happens in our group. It happens in any, anywhere, everywhere in Christianity. It's the parable of the sower and the seed. There's people that are all excited about the message and all the glory that's going to come with it. And when it doesn't come, it's like they turn away. And we're not going to have this man reign over us. He's not what I expected. And that's what we have to ask ourselves. Are we willing to go the route he's gone? We've heard that. Meek and lowly servant willing to carry our cross daily. Is that who we want to reign over us? Where are we at? That's the question we have to ask. 
So we move on here, and the second point is, and it goes in with the first point, and that is that Jesus has the ultimate authority as judge. And that's where we come to the account of the fig tree, right, where he comes to the fig tree. And it's been said that that account of the fig tree is a miracle, a parable, and prophecy. So next week we're going to look at the miracle part of it, but we'll look at the parable and prophecy part of it tonight. Because Israel is represented in the Old Testament as a fig tree and as a vine, a vineyard. And he goes on, we'll see in chapter 12, and compares Israel to a vineyard. Comes to find fruit there. There isn't any. And so he moves on. The husbands, and they're not giving him any fruit. The fig tree represents the people of God. Jeremiah 8.13, when God was pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem and on Israel because of their sin, he said there is no longer, you read it, Jeremiah 8.13, there's no longer going to be any figs on the fig tree. And it says, and the leaf shall wither. The figs are the people of Israel and the leaf is the temple. That's what we have going on here. So God is sent. What we're saying is the second thing we need to see that God has sent, has sent Jesus with the authority not only to be the anointed king, but also to be the anointed judge. So he comes seeking fruit on that fig tree. And what does he find? Finds none. So the way that works is fig trees. You say, man, was he picking on that little poor harmless fig tree, you know? That had everybody upset in America today. This guy cursed a poor, harmless fig tree. What did that fig tree ever do to you? Well, here's the thing. What's going on is the figs, it's one of the, maybe the only fruit tree where the fruit begins to grow before the leaves do. And so what that means is when Jesus sees this fig tree and it's full of leaves and full bloom, that means he should be able to expect, and he's hungry, he should be able to expect and come there and find fruit of some sort on that fig tree. And instead he gets there and he doesn't find anything. So what's the significance? The fig tree is speaking loudly. What's it saying? It's proclaiming that it has figs. It's proclaiming that it's got fruit, but there isn't any there. And so symbolically it represents Israel, Jerusalem, and its leaders. They boast of their piety, of their religion, and yet they have no fruit it's all just outward show. That's all they have. It's like the church of Sardis. It could be like churches everywhere, right? The church of Sardis in Revelation 3, Jesus said, I know thy works, that you have a name, that you live, but you are dead, is what he said. And so Jesus comes to Israel. He came to Jerusalem, and he's seeking fruit. He's seeking sincere worship true prayer, true righteousness, but he finds none of that. And we're saying he is anointed as the judge. Okay, nobody wants to hear that, but that is part of the Bible. I'm, I'm not making this up. I'm not reading into the text. And what he does is he pronounces a curse, doesn't he? Cursing of the fig tree. And here's the thing. It's the only destructive miracle in the Bible, all the rest of them are life-giving, life-producing. It's the only destructive miracle that you're going to find in the Gospels. So he, you know, here's the other thing we need to realize. He pronounces this curse over Jerusalem, and he does, but he didn't do it with a cold heart. We need to remember Ezekiel 18. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, none at all, but rather that the wicked would turn and live. That is God's heart. 
And Jesus comes and he gives this curse, but he does it weeping. So it's not in Mark's account. But when you read as he approaches the city in Luke's account, it's the same story, but just the different gospels. When you compare them, you get you get to kind of fill in everything. In Luke 19, 41 to 40, 44, here it says, and he said, he drew near. See, here he is. He's drawn near the city. And he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. He says, but now it's too late, he tells him. They are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And it didn't happen right away, did it? Just like... That fig tree didn't wither up immediately. It was overnight, wasn't it? And this destruction didn't happen that day. He just pronounced the curse. He said, this is what's going to happen. Y'all didn't know I was here. I'd have given you everything you needed for life. Didn't know it. The time of your visitation. And now here, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed judge is pronouncing a curse. And it's quiet and it should be because we need to pray that God will make us hungry for righteousness and we will not let the time of his visitation pass us by and make us aware that today is the day that he's visiting us. Today is the day we have, right? So he's still offering, I believe, to our church and to us the things that make for peace. I really do. You can't take that for granted. God's still speaking to his people, but we cannot take it for granted because he's not still speaking everywhere. Aren't there churches we know of that were once alive, vibrant, filled with the Spirit, hearing the Word, lying in ashes? That's just the fact. And that should put the fear of God in it. So what's true of Israel is also true of nations. Nations that have been given light and privileges are going to be held accountable. Like England and Europe and America. Europe's in utter darkness over there. And at one time, man, they had Wesley and Whitfield and revivals happening. And man, the word of God is coming out of England big time. So I was talking to somebody last night and they were telling me that one of the prominent evangelical ministers. However, this is true, whatever. I thought it was a good point. He's saying he believes that the center of Christianity has moved from Europe and moved over to America and it's moved out of America. Now it's over in Africa because I do know that this part of what he said is true. American churches are slowly dying, just like they are over in England. I'm telling you, you know, I think I said the statistics, 70% of Americans no longer believe the Bible is literally true. That's pathetic. And they say that the growth over in Africa, though, is 10 times. It's growing tenfold. So things are dying here. I mean, I'm sensing it, seeing it. It's the way it is in this country. People are just not interested in the word like they were back when I got born again in 80, 1981. God was moving. You could sit there and listen to a message for two hours. I did many times, and it was like it was 15 minutes. Couldn't get enough of it. And now there's just, I'm just, where you go, what you see, people are not interested. No hunger for the word. It's, it's leaving 
And we need to realize we've been given a lot here and God has blessed us with truth. So don't go off on a tangent. I'm not saying we're anything special. We're the church. I'm not saying that. Okay, (laughs) don't misquote me on that. But we have been given truth. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We teach here the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues and favor. God's given us a lot of favor. He's blessed us in a lot of ways. But if all we have is just a show and we got the Holy Spirit, but we're not living in the fullness of that, that is not what that's not going to work. We're going to be like that tree that we got the leaves and we look good. We have a name, but we don't want to have that happen here, do we? Where we're a name only, but really we're dead. (laughs) We want to see the fullness. And that's the thing. So. God has that authority. The Lord Jesus Christ, he can reduce us to ashes. That can be true of our nation, and it is going to happen here. This nation's gone. It's gone. It is not coming back as a nation. That doesn't mean people or churches have to be that way, but as a nation, this country's gone. Judgment, it's just a matter of when, not if. But it can happen to nations, it can happen to churches, and it can happen to individuals is the way that can work. So all of us need to beware, amen, and take heed. It's a warning, in a sense, to what's being given here. Seriously examine our lives and ask ourselves. Here's what we need to ask ourselves. He's coming, and what's he looking for? Not the leaves. He's looking for what? Fruit. And we need to ask ourselves, each one of us individually, not looking at someone else, do I have fruit? The Lord came to me tonight and looked at my soul. What would he find? What would he find there? He's looking under those leaves. On that tree, he didn't find a thing. He's not finding anything in Jerusalem. So what would he find if he lifted up your leaves? What would he find? What's really there? Would he find a life of prayer, faith, righteousness, godliness? Or if he lifted up your leaves, would he find a life of carnality, prayerlessness, fruit that's being choked by the cares of the world? Because it's that serious if there's no fruit. He may say, why comfort it the ground? Isn't that what he said at one time? So listen, by the grace of God, let's determine that we will abide in the vine and bear much fruit. It is not too late here. I am not making this. This is not a judgment message. It's just a warning. But we need to take it seriously. We really do. So I think we do that, we bear much fruit, abiding in the vine by having a life of prayer and everybody, everybody can improve their prayer life. That's just the way it is, okay? (laughs) And we've got to be in the word. Let that word abide in us, right? I think we heard something about abiding in the vine and bearing fruit on Sunday. I heard it, it was good. All right, so the third thing we're gonna see here in chapter 11 is that Jesus has the ultimate authority as the priest of the temple. So beginning in verse 15, what we have there, Jesus enters the temple, begins to cast out the ones who had bought and sold. He overturns the tables of the money changers, driving them out, made a whip of cords, it says in another account. And that's pretty violent, isn't it? For the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace. (laughs) But he's also the priest of the temple. Because think about it, what was the purpose of the temple? What was the purpose of it? It's the place where people could go and find the presence of God manifest. And what else? His holiness exalted. Man, did we have a sense of the holiness of God? Because that's another thing that's leaving American Christianity big time. A true sense of the holiness of God. 
when Isaiah entered the temple after King Uzziah died, it says this, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And it says above that throne stood seraphims crying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of his glory. And when they said that, it says the foundation of the doorpost shook and it's the whole temple is filled with smoke because of the glory of God. And that is what the temple is all about. That Jesus entered. It's supposed to be all about that. The presence, the holiness, and the glory of God. Because Isaiah, he's like, Isaiah had to be a godly man. But he's like, when I'm in this, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. And that's what all of us would say if we experienced that, right? And Jesus says, that's what my father's house he comes in there. He's anointed as the priest of the temple. You know, and Mark's account, it says he walks in there one night and he looks around. He sees what all's going on there. Then in Mark's account, he's coming back the next day. It reads a little differently in Matthew's account. I'm not going to try to work that all out for you, but the Bible doesn't contradict itself. But he said, that's what my father's house was intended to be, a place of prayer and worship of the holy God, to be in awe of the, in honor of this God. That's what it was supposed to be all about. He says, but you people, you leaders, you people, you've made this a den of thieves. A den of thieves. You know what does that mean? A den, that's like cave. He says, you made it like a cave where these thieves, they steal things from people. Then they all go off into a cave and they sit around and count up what all they plundered from people. He says, that's what you've made the temple like. Totally the opposite of what it was meant to be, what God had ordained it to be. So instead of a place of honoring God, he said, you've made this place of self-seeking, self-advancement, a place that is used not to bless people, but to use them, rip them off. And so what Jesus is quoting here is from Jeremiah 7:11. He says in Jeremiah 7:11, is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. He saw it all then. He's seeing it all in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's dealing with here, right? So the ones making money and profiting from the buying and selling of animals were the religious leaders. They are the ones that had the authority of the temple. And Jesus here, he's directly challenging their authority. He's like, I have authority over this place. You all don't. And I'm challenging that right now. It's what he was doing. And they got Roman soldiers watching what all he's doing. They didn't stop him. As he had the anointing of God on him. And so look what it says in verse 18, chapter 11, verse 18. It says this, And the scribes and the chief priests, after he said, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. They knew who he was talking about. The scribes, verse 18, and the chief priests heard it, and they sought how they might destroy him. only reason they didn't is because they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. And they're ripping off the people in two ways. They're not only financially ripping them off because money had to be exchanged. There was, in a sense, nothing wrong with that. There was nothing wrong with the people that did that making a small profit. But these guys are making huge profits and ripping people off. And the religious leaders are taking, they're skimming, getting their share of those profits. And he's on them about that. That's what he's saying. He's on them about that, getting those kickbacks 
financially ripping the people off, but even more wickedly than that, you think about it, the religious leaders were robbing the people of what? Coming to that temple. And that's their people's one opportunity to come to know the holy and true only God. And they're depriving them of that, aren't they? Spiritually robbing them. So when you combine Matthew's and Luke's account, this is interesting. But once all those crooked thieves have been cast out, it says in Luke's account, he did what should have been going on all along. It said Jesus began to teach the people the truth of God's word. That's what he did. The priest, he came to do what the priest should do. People are supposed to be able to come and get knowledge from the priest's lips, not have their pocketbook ripped off, right? And I mean, you could go on and on about how that takes place every day, right? But says he taught daily, Jesus did, in the temple. And the leaders hated it for him, it says in Luke's account, tried to destroy him. In Matthew's account, once the temple's cleansed, miracles begin to take place. And I want you to see that. If you would, turn back just a little bit to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. So this is the same account of the triumphal entry where he goes into the temple. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 12. And look what it says. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast all them that sold and bought, cast them out, all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the table and the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then look what follows once they're gone. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he did what? says he healed them and when the chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying hosanna to the son of david they were sore displeased and said unto him hearest thou what these say and jesus said you have never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise and he left them and went out of the city into bethany and lodged there so get the temple cleaned up and guess what you can expect god to move Right? That's corporately here, right? And individually in your own life. You don't have to wait for the whole church. Let the church live in sin. You don't have to live in sin, do you? And you see God move in your life in a big way. It's like old Gypsy Smith used to say, you want revival? Don't worry about everybody else. Get your piece of chalk, draw a circle, and stand inside it and say, Lord, begin with me. And he will. I don't remember what church it is in the book of Revelation. There's one of them that said, you just have a, he just says, you have a few that are there that are walking worthy. And the rest apparently weren't. He says, you just maintain that. I'll bless you. Amen? That's what God will do. We don't have to wait for everybody else. So what do we learn from this chapter? Back to Mark chapter 11. But here's the thing. One thing we need to keep in mind, you and I, we're not money changers. We're not selling animals so people can have sacrifices. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we so consumed with the cares of this life, the pleasures of this life, and the riches of this life that we're not bearing fruit? Choking the word that we hear, because we've heard plenty of the word, right? Most of us know what to do, but are we letting the cares and the riches and the pleasures and all that choking the word that it's not bringing forth the fruit that it should? Because here's the thing, like I said, when that's dealt with, When Jesus cleared the temple of all that made it filthy in God's sight, that is when the healing miracles began to flow. And the life of God, the life of God then and his truth was alive and well in the temple, wasn't it? 
just as he intended. And we are God's temple. And so we talked about this last Sunday or the Sunday before, right? When we separate ourselves, 2 Corinthians 6, what does he say? When you come out from among them and separate yourself from all that is unclean in God's eyes, we have great promises then given, don't we? What is the promises we're given then? God says, with Israel of old, with the ark in front of them, he was with them, walked with them, dwelt with them, but not with us, because we are his temple now. And he says, if you'll just cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and all uncleanness, he says, I won't just walk with you, I'll walk in you. I won't dwell with you, I'll dwell in you, and I'll be your father. And Paul's like, dearly beloved, with those kinds of promises, we need to get ourselves cleaned up so we can experience that. Amen? I would think all of us would want that, right? So we also need to remember that when Jesus comes as a judge and we stand before him, what's he going to be looking for, everybody? Fruit. Right? I heard you say that. He's going to be seeking fruit. And so when he sees just our leaves, just that outward show of religion, he is not going to be impressed by that. He's going to be seeking fruit. And the Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them. But it also saying that by their fruits you will be judged. Won't we? That's how we're going to be judged. And he's going to be looking for fruit. And here's what he's talking about. Ephesians 5, 9 says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness... A goodness, a person that has goodness is interested in the welfare of other people. An upright life. Someone that's interested in the welfare of people. He's looking for that kind of fruit. Looking for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And that's what Jesus, our judge, is going to be looking for in our lives. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And it says there's no law. You're not going to get in trouble if you're bearing that. That'll keep you out of trouble for eternity, won't it? Usher you right on in. So how do you bear fruit? Well, Taylor talked about it Sunday. You have to abide in the vine, allowing his word, it says, to abide in us. That's John 15. And the last thing, when Jesus comes as king, He's going to come again to the Mount of Olives. That's what we read in verse 1. Came down from Bethpage from the Mount of Olives. He's going to come back to the Mount of Olives, isn't he? But the next time, he's not going to be on a young donkey. He will be on a white horse there. It says in the book of Revelation, with his eyes as a flame of fire, it said his head will have many crowns. He's going to be wearing a robe that is dipped in blood, and his name will be the Word of God. And the name written on that robe that is dipped in blood and on his thigh will be this. This is how he's coming back. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's how he's coming back then. Not meek and mild. And no one's going to miss him when he comes back the second time. A lot of people missed him the first time. But John tells us in the book of Revelation chapter 1, Behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. We don't want to be those that are mourning, do we? So the question is, have you recognized Jesus' authority as God's anointed king? 
And so we want to receive him now in his meekness and his lowliness, allowing him to reign over our lives. And how does he do that? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're able to obey him. And then we can cry out with the multitudes, can't we? That's what we should do. Hosanna, which means God save us now. God deliver us now. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's the praise that will utter from our lips. So the issue is, what we've been talking about tonight, is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it from God or is it from man? And have we bowed the knee to that authority? That's the issue, isn't it? Amen. 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 Let's go before the Lord. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for speaking to us tonight through your word. And I just ask, Lord, you'll cause all of us here, if we haven't done it already, Lord, to humbly and gratefully bow our knee to you as our King and our Savior, Lord. And blessed be you that has come in the name of the Lord to bring us salvation, meek and lowly, Lord. And I just ask that you'll open our eyes to see that and so that we don't have to face you as judge, that we can have fruit to show you, Lord, that you can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou in to the joy of the Lord. And I just trust, Lord, that you've spoken to all of us tonight and that you'll move on hearts, grant repentance where it's needed, encouragement where it's needed, and that we can see that you are God's truly anointed king. And we praise you for that, Lord. Amen. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.